everyone. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you're all keeping cool in this heat wherever you're tuning in from. I'm Ishtar, a director in the London Health team and a co-lead of Gwen UK and Ireland, our global women's equality network. We're really thrilled to bring you the latest in our Powered by Gwen speaker series with a very special external guest. Last month, Katie Evans, Edelman's Global and EMEA Group Client Director, met Taban Shoresh, a British aid worker, women's rights activist, and founder of nonprofit The Lotus Flower during Edelman's contribution to Refugee Week. For those of you who don't know, Refugee Week is a festival celebrating the contributions, creativity, and resilience of refugees and people seeking sanctuary. And the Edelman team teamed up with Media Trust to run a charity challenge day for charities supporting refugee and migrant communities. I participated in this event back in 2021, and I can confirm that it was a fantastic and really educational experience. This year, Katie, alongside a team of Edelman colleagues, worked with Taban and Anna throughout the day on the Lotus Flowers communication challenges. The team were inspired and particularly moved by Taban's personal story and journey as a Kurdish genocide survivor from the Saddam Hussein regime. The Lotus Flower is a not-for-profit organization dedicated to empowering vulnerable women and girls so that they have they are safe, have opportunities to learn, and are given the tools to become financially independent and have the freedom to speak out and lead change. Helping women and girls affected by conflict to reach their full potential and rebuild their future is really what they are doing at their core. At Edelman, fostering the environment that promotes inclusion and respect and drives equity is critical to our success. And that's why DEI, social contribution, and entrepreneurialism are key components of our media social contract and really underscore our interest in bringing you a broad array of intersectional events like these to educate and inspire across our region. As a co-lead of Gwen, um, I'm conscious of how important the work of organizations like the Lotus Flower is and how much of a difference it can make to the women, lives of women and girls, a population that, as we know from recent events, are often the hardest hit by conflict, and which is critical in our efforts to reach gender equality. I'm thrilled that we have Taban here with us today to share her story, and I'm deeply inspired by everything that she's been able to achieve, despite the incredible challenges that she's faced along the way. Over to you, Katie and Taban. Thank Amazing. You so Thank you so much. Um, and, you know, what, what an intro and what a well-deserved intro. We had a fabulous conversation to when we met a couple of weeks ago. And I think it's fair to say we were all completely you know, inspired and moved by your story and the work that you do. So, look, why don't we kick things off by, by starting there? I think, I think it's so important to start at, at the beginning in terms of your, your personal experience and your personal story. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on here. I think it's, it's most probably easier for me to go through the journey and the story so it gives context to everything else that we discuss. So I guess if I'm going back, um, I'm Kurdish. I'm um, from northern Iraq and um, Kurds were persecuted uh, under Saddam Hussein's regime. So my father was a poet, but also a Peshmerga, which is a freedom fighter. So Saddam Hussein considered him to be one of the dangerous political activists that were in the region um, that were invoking people to uprise. Um, he was simply defending our Kurdish ethnic rights. And um, it, the story kind of starts from there, from him being involved in that movement and Saddam Hussein wanting to take us and the way that they would capture these men was by capturing the families so I remember you know the the day that we were caught and taken to prison I was in my grandmother's house now to put it in context my mum while my dad was away was working and um 
pretending to be a single mum. And so she would sneak off to the mountains to see my dad. And um, every time she came back into the office, she'd be interrogated by the secret police to try and see if they could get any information out of her. And she wouldn't give anything away, but I think this took its toll and she left work. And the day that, you know, the day after she left work, they turned up at my grandmother's house. So my my mother's parents, um, we were living with them at the time. And when they knocked on the door, you know, I was playing in the garden and my uncle opened the door and I ran towards him to open the door. And when he opened the door, you you could see that there were two Iraqi soldiers standing there and they looked down and my uncle instantly knew what was going to happen. And so he tried to deter them. And by deterring them, he kind of patted my head and said, oh, no, she's left because of this child. And meaning my mum had left my dad because of me. And they looked down at me and went, okay, so this is the enemy's child. Um, And he kind of realised, oh, gosh, what have I done? It's now going to be me being taken as well. So they asked for my my mum for questioning. um, And they were quite persistent to take her for questioning and said nothing will happen. But when they did take her, they decided to take me as well. And when we were taken to the cars um, and the doors were open, my paternal grandparents were there. So my dad's parents. And I think I just remember all the adults just crying and wailing more because they were taking me as a four year old and no amount of begging would kind of stop them from taking me. And so we went into the car and they took us to the prison, the first prison, which is like a normal prison where all criminals were. And I do remember walking in and everyone just staring to see who's new and why we've come in. Um, They took us into a room where they interrogated the adults to try and get as much information out of them. They didn't give anything away. And after a few hours, they took us back into the cars and um, were taking us to like an ethnic prison camp, you can call it. Um, On the way, they picked up a young boy, only around 18 years old. And this is what they would do at that time. So you had lots of different types of killings and um, imprisonments um, during this genocide. And this was one of them. Capturing young men was, was very, very regular. And he kept crying and just begging them not to kill him. And my dad, my grandfather was trying to console him. Even though we didn't know what his fate was, um, he would still just, try and calm him down they took him out and we never saw him again so it's quite obvious what happened sadly and when we arrived in the second prison um you had the men's quarters and then the women and children's quarters so my granddad was separated from us and taken to the men's quarters and my mother my grand mother and myself were taken to the women and children's and as we walked in you know they'd all come to the windows to kind of see who was coming who was new um we walked in and it was crammed it was absolutely packed as a child as a four-year-old it's really funny how kids kind of take things I remember when we walked in the first thing I looked at was like a rooftop area where the kids had got to and I didn't know how they'd got up there I just couldn't figure it out because there was no stairs um my grandmother was holding my hand because my mum was completely distraught and very just completely out of it and numb and in shock um we had to fight for space there was no space uh we stayed there for about two weeks and after two weeks some family names were called out 
and we were on that list. I didn't know what was going on because I was too young to understand. But when when the adults went out of the prison, they saw the diggers in front of the buses and they knew exactly what was going on. So at that time, you had mass live burials. And what would happen is they would put the diggers in front of the buses on purpose so the adults knew what was coming and that, that they were going to be buried alive. And then once you arrived at the location, they would dig the holes and then make everyone lie down alive and then cover you in soil very very slowly so it's meant to be a very slow torturous death um I didn't know any of this but obviously the adults did and so the crying and the wailing and the begging was starting and nothing really stopped them they were hurried onto the buses and on the buses it just went very quiet and very eerie and everyone was reciting the Quranic prayers um basically they knew that we were going to die and so the only thing left to do was to pray and halfway through driving the buses stopped something must have happened outside we didn't know at the time but then when the buses started driving again and it stopped again the doors opened and there were two um Kurdish men the drivers they switched drivers now at that time you had Kurds working for Kurds to rescue them in situations like this but then you also had Kurds who were actually working for Saddam to kill Kurds as well so you had the both and we've had the experience with both but this time it was two men who were Kurdish and they opened the doors and they said right you need to disappear and pretend as if you're dead because you've got the death sentence on you if you're found you'll be killed instantly on the spot Um, we're just here to rescue you, but the rest is on you to keep yourself safe. So we, my grandfather, my grandmother and myself and my mum, we managed to find our way to like a main road. And it was in the middle of nowhere. And my granddad stopped a taxi, which happened to be one of his old students because he used to be a teacher. And his student was saying, what the hell are you doing in the middle of nowhere um, with your family? And at that time, you couldn't tell anyone anything. So he just said, don't ask any questions. Just sneak us back into the city without anyone knowing. Um, And we went back and we didn't go back to my grandparents' house, my mother's grandparents, because it was too risky. So we went to my mum's stepsister's house, which is the least likely place that they would search. And when we walked in, everyone was wearing black and they were kind of starting our funeral because the message had got to them that we'd been buried alive. And um, and they were shocked to see us alive. But we'd got message that we had to leave the city that day. And my mum decided to leave my older brother because he'd not been captured. And so they didn't really know he existed. So if anything happened to us, it would just happen to us and not him. Um, And she had a brother in the south of Iraq, in Douaniya, and actually it was the most probably the safest place to go because it's Arab populated and it wouldn't be searched. And so we ended up going there and staying, being housebound for about three months. And I couldn't go out because I spoke Kurdish, so I would kind of give it away. But my mum spoke Arabic and so she could. After three months, she put her foot down and said, I'm not going to kill myself and my kids for you and asked my dad to find us a safe escape route and leave the country. Um, So we started our journey to heading towards Iran. So we picked up my brother. Now, this is during the Iran and Iraq war. So you had all the bombs dropping in the rural areas. We couldn't go into the cities because we'd be found 
um, by Saddam's regime. So we could only stay in the rural parts. And this is where all the bombings were happening. So we, we, we'd stay like a month in a village that was completely deserted, then move on to the next village. And so for about 12 months, that's what we did. And then finally, we were smuggled into Iran on horseback. Um, it was my brother, my mom and myself. My dad was meant to meet us. So we made it to Iran. And then my dad, Saddam Hussein, had hired a husband and wife to poison a group of men. And he was included in that group. And what they did was they laid out a massive feast. And in our culture, food's very big. So you'd never suspect anything. And um, so they sat down and ate with them. But they put the poison in the yogurt drink. So all the men that gulped down the drink quickly a few died on the spot. And in Iran, Amnesty International heard of their story. And my dad was flown to the UK for medical treatment. Um, and I, we, we had to wait a, a year before he survived and then for us to kind of um, come over. And then I arrived as a refugee with my family in 1988. So that's, that's kind of the childhood backstory. Um, I don't know where you want to kind of take it from there, but that's that's not a normal childhood um it's it's pretty but I think it's set in stone what I've been like doing now and I, and I think to that look I mean it's it, it it's it's not anything that, that that many people have experienced and lived through right so what I would love to to know is then you you didn't you didn't instantly did you sort of think okay right then in my future in my grown-up future this is what I'm going to dedicate my life to. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, quite the opposite. For many years, I suppressed it. Um, I remember when we first arrived as refugees, we, we didn't speak any English, so we were just starting out. And I remember an incident in primary school. Um, I mean, everyone was very welcoming at the time. It, we had so much support. But sometimes in primary school, kids can be kids and kids you know, can be mean at times. And I do remember a particular incident where I was in the dinner line and a girl turned around and said, your dad's Saddam Hussein. Now, I didn't understand English, but I knew your dad because we picked that up when I knew Saddam Hussein. So I kind of figured out what she was saying. And I was so angry because she didn't know what Saddam Hussein has actually put us through. So I couldn't verbalize it. So I just pushed her. And with pushing her, she started crying. And the teacher saw me and the teacher came over and told me off. But I couldn't verbalize why I'd pushed her or why I was upset. So I was sent to the back of the line. And I remember just standing there and shaking and crying and going, right, OK, well, I'm never going to tell anyone about my past. I'm never going to talk about it. And from there, I don't think I spoke about it for a really long time um, in my teenage years, I completely suppressed it. I didn't really want to talk about it. Um, I just wanted to be like all the English kids in my school and just blend in and no questions asked. And, and then the first time I spoke about it was on Genocide Remembrance Day in 2014, April 2014, where we were asked to kind of speak at the House of Lords as survivors. And that's the first time that I had a purpose to talk about my story. So I, I, I decided to kind of share it then, um, but still not knowing that I'd end up doing this, although that was the first trigger of 
hold on you couldn't you can do something because something was missing I could feel something was missing I couldn't figure out what and I think from that talk I just realized the reception that I got in terms of people connecting with the story and just being really moved by it I didn't realize that I could do that and I thought well how can I do something by giving back um you know, every year, I, I always remember that there's 182,000 people that were killed during the time that I survived. And knowing how some of them were killed, especially with the mass life burials, and I've seen, it's really brutal. I've seen footage of how they do it, and it's it's unbearable. So every year, I'm kind of reminded how, of how lucky I am. And actually, what is it that you can do to give back? You've managed to survive something. So what's your what's your role in trying to help others or preventing? So I think that talk triggered it. And then it, it, it kind of started from there. So tell us, Taban, then let, let's get into the lotus flower. I think when we, we chatted a little bit, you, you know, you talked to us about some of the the brilliant work that you do so you talk about your your desire to kind of give back and I think you know you can say you've done that done that sort of in a, a plentiful way tell, tell us all a little bit about your organization and the sort of work that you do so the lotus flower I mean it, it kind of started at the back of um, I left my city job in 2014 um after deciding I need to do something couldn't figure out what and I had a meeting with my CEO of all people and he kind of made me realize that I can do something and step out of my comfort zone so I did and while ISIS was um in the region in Iraq I decided to go back during the humanitarian crisis and work there so I worked very closely with the women and girls and when I left after 15 months I realized there's really a need and a gap Um, And I could be that bridge between those two worlds where I support all the women and girls back home, but also bring the support from here and like match the two worlds and be that bridge. Um, So I set it up in my living room with absolutely no money. And um, I'm astonished to see where we are now. Uh, we've, We've got like 68 staff members on the ground who are direct implementers of our projects. Um, We've managed to help 44,000 women and girls through all of our projects. I'd say half of that is direct. So 44 is like where they've taken courses twice or they've doubled up on our courses. Um, Since 2016, I think that's phenomenal for a small organization. And having worked in bigger organizations, I know how hard it can be. So what we do is we support women and girls impacted by conflict and displacement. And we have safe social spaces inside refugee camps. And in those camps, we implement projects that are aligned to our pillars. And those pillars are education and livelihoods, peace building and human rights and health and safety. And those pillars are all aligned to SDG goals. So we are kind of aligned with a bigger global vision as well and in terms of making impact in the world. Um, And we, you know, I can give you some examples. We do so much, but I'll give you a few examples of some projects. Under education, for example, Adult literacy is extremely popular, and that's because a lot of the women in these camps are from rural areas, and they've never had access to education ever. So it's the first time that they've picked up a pen, and they're you know you know you think oh how is that going to change someone's life? Well, actually, they can read their phones now. They can actually type in what they need. They can read their prescriptions. They can do really daily basic things that they've never been able to do before. 
Um, so that's a really, really popular course. And then under education, we have lots of other vocational courses. Under livelihoods, we um, implemented the first women's business incubator program in camps across the Middle East. So that's where we help women find out what businesses are needed inside these camps. And remember, these camps are like 20,000, 15,000 people. So they're small villages or towns um so we help them in terms of finding out doing the market research what's needed and then once they've identified that we provide the training and a small grant to help them start and it can be like it really is phenomenal what they come up with because it's really what the community needs so you've got got a hairdresser you've got a cafe you've got um supermarkets you've got clothes shops you've there's an array of things um in these centers um, we've got a cafe that's run by women for women. We've got Baking Sisters, which is a bakery. I mean, you'd never think a bakery would be so popular in a camp, but it is unbelievably popular. People forget that, you, you know, in these camps, people have birthdays, there are weddings, there are graduations, um, all these things kind of continue, but just in a different way. So we figured out actually, how do we help them continue their life, even though their life is stalled in a camp? setting how do we enable them and provide skills by allowing them to kind of flourish so even if they did leave they take their skills with them um under peace building we've got a program which is really popular at the moment called peace sisters and it's we're training peace mediators from the ground up to be uh, mediators amongst the community um we have uh Health, so uh, all our centers have a therapist, so mental health support, um, psychologists. So there's there's lots and lots of different programs, but we believe in a holistic approach and helping women heal, learn, and grow. That's that's the main thing. So th these centers are hubs of activity for the community, and they change from being yoga in the morning to boxing sisters to um, uh, business training to adult literacy. So it completely changes what's happening throughout the day. Um, we've got storytelling sisters where we've trained uh, women to become storytellers in the community and we actually hire some. So they do our social content, our photography. Um, we really, really try and include them in our projects as much as possible. So about how, how, I mean, you know, there's so many things in that that I love. And I know we talked at length about the kind of you know, boxing sisters and the importance there of, you know, supporting, you know, women and girls' well-being. It's not, it's not just women, though, that you help, is it? And I know that's something that you're also quite passionate about. Yeah, yeah. We definitely believe in involving the whole community as part of that holistic support. Um, we work in a region that's you know the the community that we work in it's very very conservative in terms of the involvement of men and we had to figure out how we do it and how we approach it in the most sensitive way and actually because we've gained so much trust in the community we figured out how to do it in such a way where we've got men and boys engaged in our programs as well so especially around gender-based violence where we do programs along that um, we try and include the men and boys in programs and we provide, so we do, we have a project which is positive masculinity. So it's a lot of capacity building training um, about what it means to be a, a positive male figure in the community. Um, and then we also do lots of men's, uh, men and boys trauma program. And we just won a UNHCR award for that, actually. It's, it's 
recognizing and the men would come to us so off the back of the positive masculinity the men kind of kind of came to us and said actually we need mental health support as well so we've provided mental health support for the men and boys and we believe actually for a community to thrive um, especially for women and girls you do need the whole community involved as part of that and what completely couldn't agree more and I think what's what what's been What's been some of the hardest moments for you in doing this? Because I think even you talk about the scale of the camps, you talk about the you know, the lack of the lack of safety, I guess, and, and support that women and girls and men and boys feel. But what's what's been the hardest thing for you in terms of sort of building up your organization and the work you do? I think in all honesty, the hardest, hardest thing for, for me has been, I mean, you've got to kind of look, remember the story that I've just told you. I arrived as a refugee. So, you know, in terms of my contacts and connections, and some people are very lucky where they set something up and they're kind of fully loaded with all the connections and set up, everything's behind you and you can get that going. I didn't have that. I, I I literally set it up in my living room with no money and zero connection. So I've had to build that up really. Um, and it's been hard. It's been hard securing funding, multi-year funding to really keep that going and make people understand that it's not just about one project. It's about keeping the whole organization going for that one project to happen. Because, you know, I've got 68 staff members and when we we hire locally on purpose um, and that comes from being in the region and seeing stuff on the region, I just feel that the more you empower the local community, the stronger it will be. Um, also, it, it's a lot more cost effective. You know, you're not only are you adding to the economy locally, but um hiring someone international in a local setting it's going to be 30 times more expensive than hiring a local person and I believe the knowledge and the experience is in the local community um so I think securing funding has been very very difficult COVID hit us which you know we nearly had to close because of COVID um and then it's 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 the constant changes in the world in terms of challenges so the Ukraine war happened and that has a knock-on effect on all charities around the world. And I think for us, we're at a stage now where we've grown um, and our work is really, really well recognized and appreciated as local implementers. So now we're looking for like really building and nourishing those long-term partnerships. And it's not just a quick project um, partnership. I mean, we, we don't mind. We're not going to turn something away for that. But really thinking strategically on how we can build that sustainability because Funding has always been, and I'm guessing will always be an issue, not just for us, but everyone in the sector. So why don't we dig into that? What could any of the individuals listening to you and to this conversation and getting a deeper understanding of the sort of work that you do, what what could the brands and organisations, how could they partner with you? What could they do yeah. to help? Well, firstly, there are so many different different ways. And I think what makes us very unique is that we're a very agile, nimble organization. And I guess if, if other corporates and brands wanted to partner up with, um, I guess, bigger international organizations, it would be a lot harder to get what you want in terms of the, you know, the, there were just so many barriers and um, so much red tape for you to 
implement something really small. Whereas with us, we're very agile and nimble and can get things done very quickly with the partnerships that we've had already. Um, it's just been phenomenal. And they've, they've had, you know, they're very happy in terms of what they've got out of it as well. Um, you can see that it's a direct, direct impact. Like you, you don't have different layers. You see the direct impact in terms of the case studies that we provide. If you wanted to go out and visit the project, we're more than, you know, open to, um, hosting donors and supporters and to come out and see we get a lot of um, requests for uh, like come because we are rich in I guess case studies and stories and human life stories um, we get a lot of requests from journalists and from a comms perspective and we have the gold dust in terms of stories that that you know organizations want to know what their impact has been we can provide that um, People can be involved through um, skill sharing, but then also it depends on the brand partnership. For example, Baking Sisters, if there's a brand out there who works with bread, that'd be great. We could figure out a way of how, how we can make that happen. Um, I, uh, Boxing Sisters, sports brands. I mean, we have so many different projects that you can kind of really align them and create a really... Uh, a strong story between the two and a strong link between the two. Um, we find that as a small organization, um, doing talks and events and things are really, really good. So if, if there's some way of bringing us in, in into that, that would be amazing, um, either in, in the organization to provide advice or as consulting or as a talk panel, however it is. We've got that really rich local insight. Um, and I'd say a pretty unique local insight in the way that we're formed and led um, there's a story behind it and it's quite rare to find that in in other places I think um, so there are so many different ways obviously with fun I, I could just say funding but that's it's not it's not just about the money it's how do we create a long-term partnership where both sides want to impact the world in a particular way um, and and I think having discussions around that and brainstorming that also recognizing that it is it'd be ideal if we can do multi-year support and what does that look like what does that impact look like in the long run um and supporting the organization and recognizing that a percentage of that has to go for the organization um there are so many different ways that we could build a partnership we're very very open to discussing and i think that's that's the greatest thing about us being agile and nimble is that we are open to opportunities and seeing how we can kind of develop that. Tell me a bit about, you know, when we chatted, you know, you were sort of saying, I think that whole idea of, you know, bringing media out, what, what are, you know, and you sort of said there's, there's often quite a lot of pushback or I suppose lack of understanding or misconceptions, preconceptions about what the, the sort of, you know, refugee camp experience might be, how safe it is, you know, and I'd imagine that's something that brands would be like, okay, yeah, we kind of want to help, but, you know, how, how do we sort of navigate some of this? Yeah. What, what are some of those biggest, I suppose, misconceptions that people have about the places, the people, the women and girls that you support? Yeah, I think the biggest misconception is that it's an active war zone and it's a really dangerous and scary place to go. And, you know, it's what the media has portrayed, right? So it's, it's somewhere that where we couldn't go. We've had some people turn around and say, oh, we'd love to work with you, but our 
security department won't let us uh, because you can't go through Baghdad. And when they're going, you're not going to go through Baghdad. You go through Erbil, which is the north side, and it's very safe. And you go through, like, it's it's trusting our our insight into that. You know, I've got staff working there. We travel there regularly. There are organizations which provide, like, um, control risk assessments, if that's what a corporate would need before going out. Um, but it's a relatively safe place. And we've taken donors out, we've taken supporters out, and the ones that have gone are absolutely blown away because it's nothing like what they expected. You still have, yes, 30 camps in the region which are in desperate need of support because they've kind of been forgotten by everyone and donor needs have kind of gone elsewhere. So you can still access those camps and still go into those places safely. Um, As with anywhere, there's risks of things happening anytime. I think it's, I'd say it's a similar amount of risk um, to being here. A bomb could go off here or there could be a car accident here. Um, But it's not an active war zone, which is what many people perceive it to be. And um, I think that's the biggest one. I'm going to open it up to questions in a minute but I'd sort of love to know and I guess um you know as we we all start to I'm going to say there's a there's a horrible thing you know you you referred to sort of you Ukraine and Ukrainian refugees we then have you know stories about sending refugees to Rwanda here in the UK which you know whatever you know it's kind of like crazy you know how 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 can individuals like any of us how how can we get ourselves you know better informed or how can we personally support in any way around you know those who are displaced have lost their homes and find themselves in that situation what can we do yeah i mean at the moment as we talk there's there's 100 million people displaced around the world and refugees and that number has dramatically increased and it's going to increase because of Things like climate change, environmental disasters, more wars, sadly. So those numbers are going to increase. And what we really need is allies and supporters to really counter the increasing right-wing voices um, and really find that way of supporting and it, it varies in every location like it really in, in every situation as well for example where you've supported a Ukrainian refugee that's absolutely amazing thank you so much but can you also do the same for another refugee somewhere else there are many refugees around the world and it's providing that balance and just remembering to support in that way like um, co- collectively and in a balanced way, um, there was a lot of inequality in terms of, I mean, there shouldn't even be a refugee, like balance or not, but but there was. Um, so it, it would be how do you play a role in providing that balance? In the case of, for example, Rwanda, um, you know, in the UK, you can write to your MPs, put pressure on your MPs and really support local organisations. I would say one thing I would say is there's a massive 
trend towards supporting local organizations and local implementers. And that noise is coming from bigger international organizations as well. They're recognizing that. So I would say in your regions or wherever you're based, figure out which ones are the good local organizations that you can really support. Because at the end of the day, we are the ones that are implementing. We're the direct implementers and we're the ones that really need the support. Um, Without us, all the bigger organizations can't actually function because we implement their projects. We are the ones that do the projects on the ground. So find out who, who they are and what you can do and how you can support in, in, in that way. And it could be from writing letters to MPs. It could be providing skills. It could be from donating. It could be running fundraisers. It could be being a connector. So knowing, actually, I know this person who knows that person or I know this organization. So there are so many different ways. And I think what's amazing, you know, we think about the kind of recent you know, experience of the the sort of shocking events in Ukraine and you know that kind of outpouring I guess of people going you know I, I will help but I suppose it's for all of us to sort of say let's let's get informed that you know something that is just sort of close to home or dare I say you know people that look like they have lives like mine you know that that doesn't become the only thing that I guess we support what I would love to know a little bit is I'm sort of I'm keen to understand the, the women and girls that you support, you provide a safe place, you provide education, you support around, you know, whether it be literacy or well-being through boxing. How does this support them? And, and what's what's the likelihood of, of these women and these girls going on to leave the camps and to lead a another life to pick up with the lives as they potentially once had yeah okay I'm, tr I'm trying to I I'm going to give you three quick case studies to illustrate yeah. that I'm going to keep them really really short the first one is sadly with ISIS um we had a 12 year old girl that was raped for three years by six different men um ISIS fighters and when she was rescued and brought back to the camp, she would not go out of the cabin. She just would not step out of it. Um, we were working with her mum. So her mum was coming to our centres quite a lot. And we went and visited her one day and just said, why don't you try boxing? Just come. If you don't like it, you don't have to ever come back again. And she came. And the fact that she came there and there was girls her age and they just focused on boxing and she realized it was just focusing on boxing and no one was going to say anything else. No one was going to ask anything else. And if she wanted support, there was a therapist there to support her. Um, so she came and then she came and then she came and then she came. She came so much to the point that she ended up going back to school. So she felt confident enough to go back to school and she went back to school and now they've been relocated to another country and she's absolutely thriving. So that's one. And then another one, Hafer, um, was a single mum, deaf and mute. And she had, so her children were separated from her when ISIS took them and ISIS took her as well. The boys were taken to be um, cub so soldiers. So they were being trained to be soldiers. Um, eventually they were all rescued and brought back together but when she came back to the camp the family didn't want her because she was deaf and mute and a single mum and so she was seen as a burden 
So she went through our program. She went through adult literacy, which helped her communicate with other people through writing for the first time in her life. Um, we trained her on different businesses. Um, she went through Sewing Sisters, so she knows how to sew, and that was one income stream. She went through the Women's Business Incubator. She set up a mobile phone top-up shop, which, to be honest, was absolute genius because everyone needs a top-up card in the camps. Um, so that she became completely independent and financially independent, and she was able to look after her kids. Um, I think, yeah, they're two great examples of you wouldn't realize how it helps, but actually it makes a massive difference. And we've had women who have started businesses in the camps. They've left the camp and they've started businesses. They've continued their businesses outside the camp. So it's something that they can carry forward. Um, we've got lots of examples of that, but just three to kind of give you an idea. And is it is it that to ban? Like I, I think we've you're pretty good time for pretty you know, one or two more questions. Is is it that that gives you the sort of I guess resilience and, and positivity to to carry on? Is it is it knowing that you can even if yeah you know, they they feel like small things, they are having an enormous impact on individuals and their lives? Yeah. I think you know. With so many problems around the world, sometimes it can be daunting to think, oh, actually, what's my action going to do? There's going to be zero impact from the action that I'm taking. Like, what's the point? Because of so many things going on. But I'm, I'm of the belief of actually you just make one small impact in one area and it will just trickle. It will have the trickling effect. For example, we have um, our baking sisters. We help those women set up the bakery, but now they give back to the community. So they will do free baking items for any families that are in desperate need. So I think no matter how small the action is, really, really recognize that that's going to go somewhere and it will go far. Doing the work that you do, you know, how do you manage your own mental health you seem like someone from you know, the, the time that we spent together who gives right you give all the time you give to everybody how do you manage your own mental health so it's, it's been a journey but I think the first thing is is recognizing that it's okay to to have down days and I do have down days it's recognizing that you need to when you go into a situation you need to protect yourself and be active in that protection of going okay I'm now going into the situation I'm aware of what's going on and if I need the support afterwards I will find the support that I need so I've done a lot of healing work on myself and I'm very very in tune with what my body needs or what my emotional needs are and so I'll be able to tap into what modalities or what techniques I need support in um, I'm a massive massive advocate of mental health and I think especially in my culture it's such a stigmatized thing that it, it took me a very very long time to recognize no it's it's actually okay you've been through a lot I think for everyone what I did which really really helped me which helped me recognize that it's okay to have support was I, I wrote my age backwards and I wrote every event, good or bad, at, at any elevated event in my life um, to that age. And I realized, and I looked at it on paper and went, oh my gosh, okay, Taban, you've been through a lot. 
you're okay to feel like this. Now figure out what support you need. So going out and, and, and talking and finding the modalities that will help you. Everyone's different. So whatever I say might not help somebody else. So it's figuring out what your body really, really needs. And it's taking that active, I'd say it's taking that active step to find out what you need. That's the biggest thing. That's the biggest hurdle, actually. Um, And recognizing working in this field is quite hard. And if you need support, then you you need to kind of um, seek that support. We've applied for like, at the moment, we've applied for funding for a project. And that project is to fund the well-being of my staff. So to actually help them, they're the direct, they have that direct link. You know, you need to know what situation you go into. I've been in situations where it has triggered flashbacks of my childhood. And so, but I, I know what tools I need to kind of use in that moment. And and I think if if there's any advice that I could give, it's taking that action to figure out what you need, where and when. So you can just pull them out of your pockets. And if that is having someone at the end of the line and making sure that they speak to you, then make sure that that person knows it and they're aware that if you send a message at a particular time saying something that they need to free up that time to speak to you. So it it varies. Um, I think being born into a war and being born into flight, fight and flight mode your whole life, I've been forced to be resilient. And I, I'm trying to, at the moment, to reprogram my mind and think, actually, I don't need to be resilient. It's okay if I'm not resilient. It's okay if I've got a day where I just go, no, I am not resilient today and I'm not going to do it. Um, but either way is okay. But I think I've just been forced to be resilient because of everything that we've experienced from day one. And my mum is a great example in that she's got us through all those difficult times and she's just forced us to be resilient. But I think now I'm trying to teach her, it's okay if you ask for help, you know. You, you don't have to be resilient all the time. That's part of resiliency is, is knowing when when to ask for help. Um, so, yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant, look, brilliant advice. And I think, you know, just, yeah. Look, I've so enjoyed our chat today and thank you so much for... You know, speaking to everyone, Taban. So, you know, on behalf of Edelman and Gwen, thank you so much, Taban, for sharing your your story with us. Um, I managed not to cry this time, um, but uh, yeah, f- fighting it back, I promise you. Um, thank thank you, you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.